All right, if you uh, want to grab your Bibles, you can open to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We're actually in chapter 6, guys. It's taken us almost a year to get through the first five, but uh, we're doing well. This is good. Well, training in godliness has always been at the heart of the mission of God's church. But it's interesting to watch the ebbs and flows over the course of church history, uh, something that many of us are not acquainted with anymore. As early as a couple hundred years into the church, a convert or even a child awaiting baptism would need to undergo rigorous training before being able to take communion. In some cases, a convert would be going to a church, attending a local church, being taught by the pastor for three years, the whole time professing Christ, before the church would say, okay, we believe you're a Christian, let's baptize you. Now, you can have theological debates about whether that's right or wrong, but it's interesting because the training was so important. And from the 400s until the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, that kind of took a downturn. And the church slowly but surely declined away from this as decay and laxity uh, in the church discipline and piety gave way to greed and depravity. You can read all about that in many church history books. In the early 1500s, the Reformation moved through the church like a wildfire, creating a new kind of church structure, largely taking power away from those greedy bishops and cardinals and putting power back in the hands of the local church members. And one thing remained uh, from the old ways, even though this new uh, change had happened. The thing that remained was that the church and the state were heavily connected. And if you wanted to be part of the state, if you wanted to be a citizen operating within the social structure of the state, you had to be part of the church. The church ran the state and the state ran the church. For example, the pope was the one that would install the emperor and the emperor is the one that would give power to the pope. This didn't change with the Reformation. It just moved slightly. And so when the Puritans and many of the early settlers of the New England colonies established governments, they largely connected them to the church. And so the church members, or church membership, became the avenue by which you partook in colonial life. The churches were paid for by tax dollars, and so therefore the government would tell the church what to tell the people. And this is how the colonies were started. And so church membership became uh, this interesting thing, and it was actually quite wonderful because the earliest settlers largely dreamed of creating the kingdom of God on earth in which the church ruled over the government. But we all know how that's gone over the last 2,000 years. Within two generations, though, that dream gave way again to apathy. People still maintained, quote-unquote, membership in the church, but in name only. They were what I would call God bless America Christians, okay? They didn't maintain membership in terms of lifestyle. And without a true conversion that led to obedience in Christ, the children of the original Puritans who were zealous for the Lord, they were members in the church, but because they didn't have a conversion experience, they couldn't partake in communion, nor could they have their own infants baptized because infant baptism had become big by that point. The church was quickly losing its prophetic voice into the culture, and it scrambled to regain its place. If people aren't going to be zealous, they thought, what do we do to the church in order to get more people in. And so in 1650, roughly 30 years, not that long after the Plymouth Landing in Massachusetts, the church put into place something called the Halfway Covenant. Everybody say it with me, the Halfway Covenant. What this allowed was for parents who didn't want to practice the lifestyle themselves of a regenerate converted believer, 
but they wanted to baptize their children because they knew religion would be good for their kids, they could now baptize their kids into church and get them accepted in the social circles of colonial life while themselves staying apathetic in their faith. And over the next 80 years, this was the spiritual life of the Americas, halfway. Historians and theologians debate whether or not this was a good thing. Piety and holiness became a private matter, and one in which the church was not supposed to poke their nose. Obedience was seen as legalism, and what you had was zealous grandparents, apathetic children, and unchurched grandchildren. Does this sound familiar at all? Yeah. Amazing how zeal can die in one generation if it's not tended well. It was into this environment that Jonathan Edwards, possibly the greatest American theologian, was born. Quoting one historian, uh, he said this, Edwards was grieved at the spiritual condition of the church and the community. Many made outward assent to the faith and partook in the life of the church, but they gave no evidence of genuine conversion in their lives. The people of Northampton, that's where he pastored in Massachusetts, were generally complacent about spiritual things. Church discipline had become lax, and there had been very little screening for church membership. And so what did Edwards do when he came into this? He started preaching in Northampton under the direction of the current pastor, his grandfather, who was in support of the halfway covenant. But Edwards was fiery, and he saw the need to remove the hypocrisy in the church so that the gospel might be proclaimed. He believed that the point of the church was to be individuals that lived holy lives, working together to show the glory of God and unchecked hypocrisy in the church, he knew would tarnish that witness. It was with that vision that he set about re-implementing the importance of church membership and devotion of the saints to one another and discipline of the unrepentant. Does this sound familiar? The results were nothing short of revival. A number of historical theologians credit Edward's zeal for conversion and holy obedience with sparking the first great awakening. Here's one quote from author Jeremy Kimball in his article, That Their Souls May Be Saved. He says, There are, in fact, no disciplinary cases noted in Edward's early ministry, though this certainly changed in the 1740s as a number of members fell under disciplinary measures. It is no coincidence that Edward's worked hardest to align Northampton's church polity or structure with his doctrine of the church, beginning in the 1740s, the height of the Great Awakening. Edwards experienced a great awakening and revival that would set the tone for all future definitions of what revival was. We don't know for sure, but at its core, many historians believe that the revival was sparked because disciples of Jesus like Edwards started to take seriously the call to walk in obedience to Christ's reign over the church. And they started to initiate that in their own churches. The first great awakening, unlike the second one, took place in churches, not out in tent revivals. And Jonathan Edwards knew, for us to convert others to Christ, we must first check to make sure our own households are in order. And I believe that Paul's commands to parents that we're going to read here today in Ephesians 6 will call us to the same task. This morning, I want to ask us, I want to ask Mission Fellowship, if our homes reflect the reign of of Jesus the Christ. As we've been seeing in Ephesians 4 and 5, Paul is calling the Ephesians church to the same zeal and holiness that Edwards exampled. 
The world would not care and will not care to hear what we have to say about Jesus if they see hypocrisy in our midst. And for the last few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been seeing how to take the hypocrisy out of our relationships and let our relationships speak to the glory of God in what Martin Luther termed the household code. We first talked about brothers and sisters in Christ and then husbands and wives, and now today we're going to move into children and parents and how that relationship, children and parents, proclaims the witness of Jesus Christ. And what I believe we'll find, as we uh, did with the marriages, is that as the church goes, so goes our households. And as the households go, our homes go, so goes the church. If we pursue Christ with zeal in our homes, it will affect this church in a good way. And if we pursue Christ with zeal in this church, it will affect our homes in a good way. So let's look here at Ephesians 6, and we're just going to cover four small verses, but don't worry, I'll give you lots of scripture to look at later today. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, in those earliest of days, as you find in many developing countries now, and as you find on fifth Sundays where we have agape meals, the children were sitting in. And so this makes sense that it would be addressed to the kids to start. And so if you are a kiddo, if your parents are still in your life and they serve the Lord, then this is a command for all of us. Children are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord. And this would be my first point, but we live in a different day where we spend an hour going through Scripture because of the lack of biblical literacy. And so our kids are out. Some kids are still in here. If you're a teenager, yes, you're still a kid. I'm sorry to tell you. But you still have to obey your parents. But I'm going to talk more about what that means. For us, the the majority of us in the room, we need to write this down. This is our first big point. God commands parents to train their children in the Lord. Children need to obey their parents. That is obvious. It's a command. What does that mean? Well, I think it actually starts with the parents. For children to obey their parents, it actually starts with the parents. You know, I've told you before I'm a person that likes to be liked, so I don't know why I became a pastor. Um, (laughs) We're going to be talking about the topic of obedience. And can we just acknowledge that the topic of obedience and authority, it's not looked upon well in our day and age, is it? We flock like moths to a flame to a cheap grace gospel that requires no accountability, no authority, and no obedience. But let's look at obedience from a biblical theological viewpoint for a minute. Would you go there with me? Want to trace the Bible really fast, five minutes or less here? Probably 10 minutes or less. Who am I kidding? (laughs) Start back with me in the Garden of Eden. There we find the definition of obedience and disobedience. Obedience is allowing God to be the one who dictates what good and evil is, and we follow that. That's obedience. Disobedience is to say, I don't really like your view of good and evil, so I'm going to take it on myself. In fact, this is what our children do whenever they disobey. Mom, Dad, I I know you told me not to eat from that tree, but it looks good to me, so I'm going to go ahead and do it, right? Remember what uh, happened to Eve there in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Those of us who've lived a little bit more life, we realize that sin often looks just like this. Oh, that looks pretty good. I'm going to try that out. But we have wise people telling us, no, don't do it. It's going to be terrible for you. But it looks good. It feels good. It sounds good. Everybody else is doing it. The reality is, is it'll kill us. From that point on, the world devolved into disobedience, and God eventually found out of the sons of disobedience one man, Abram or Abraham, who would be his. Now, why did he choose Abraham? Because he believed Abraham would be obedient. Look at this. Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, his choosing was 100% by grace, because was Abraham a solid 100% perfect dude? No, not at all. So it was 100% by grace, but in that grace, even though he knew Abraham had faults and failures, Abraham was still massively obedient to Yahweh. Now, I don't have time to go into all of it, but just for example, look at Genesis 26, verses 4 through 5. God says to him in the midst of uh, re-strengthening uh, his covenant, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is repeating what he told him in Genesis 12. Because Abraham did what? What's that next word? Obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commands, my statutes, and my laws. Now you might say, Hans, he didn't obey. He, he went into his handmaiden and, and, and had a baby with her when he was supposed to follow the promise of God. Yeah, he screwed up. But guys, if your children never screw up, are they obedient? Yeah. But you'd still call your children obedient if they screw up once in a while, but they always come back in repentance, right? See, that's what people miss about obedience is obedience, as Patrick said a few weeks ago, it's not bowling a 300 game. It's walking in a state of repentance. And when you do something wrong, you repent, you turn. And that was Abraham. He was a man after God's own heart. Why was David a man after God's own heart? You read his story, man, that guy was a mess. <laughs> the reality is, is he repented. Saul never repented. That's why he was never a man after God's own heart. They both made mistakes, but David repented. Well, God's plan for his people through Abraham was that they would obey God's way. And in doing so, they'd bring about righteousness and justice in the midst of a world of selfishness and, and disobedience. They'd stand out. Look at God's call through Moses to the people here in Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 12, 28. He says, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Notice how he talks about progeny, how he talks about descendants there. Obey and your kids will obey. Some of these things were God's moral law, some ceremonial for that time and place. I don't have time to go into that, but that's how it lays out. Moses knew that they wouldn't obey, though. He knew that their hearts were hardened and they needed God's help, God's spirit, in order to obey. And so he predicted that they would turn away and they would be dispersed and disciplined to the nations. But look at what he says when he predicts God's grace will help them in the future to obey. This is speaking about us as well. Moses said, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and, re and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, notice that, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. Notice that returning to the Lord is also obeying with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God 
will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. And then a few verses later, he finishes by saying, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord, Yahweh, and keep all his commandments that I command you today. And Moses was right. The Israelites ended up taking more pride in their religious practices than they did in their obedience. Remember this, when um, this was spoken to the king in 1 Samuel there? Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Here's what Jeremiah was sent to tell the people. This is Jeremiah 7, 21, or 23 through 24. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey nor incline their ear but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and went backward, not forward. You ever have days where you feel like you're doing that spiritually? But even with that level of disobedience, God was not finished with them. He promised a day would come when God's grace would provide regeneration of hearts, Gentile and Jewish, so that God's people would follow him in obedience. Look at this. This is from Ezekiel 11. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture here, but I'm trying to paint the broad narrative of scripture. This is Ezekiel 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. See this parallel, guys? To be God's people is to obey him. Okay? And so when Christ said that the kingdom of God was within us, among the people, that the people of his day saw the beginning of the kingdom and that the Holy Spirit was poured out into the hearts of the people, it was very much referring to God's people's obedience, that the Holy Spirit helps us to obey. If we are part of God's people, we walk in obedience. Guys, and this is why those who are not Christ are referred to throughout the New Testament as sons of what? Disobedience. And so look at how Christians are called to live. Here's one example, okay? There's 169 plus places in Scripture that you can look to figure out what obedience is. Here's one. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we see a theology of obedience as a response to God's grace, and it's at the core of the biblical narrative. You can't get away from the topic of obedience. One might protest, though, if you grew up listening to a lot of the the cheap grace gospel that I grew up listening to, you might protest and say that the word obedience infers an idea of earning our salvation. But here's the truth that destroys that idea. Listen carefully. Without the regenerating gracious work of God in your life, you will never obey. It is literally impossible. You can't white-knuckle it You can't just decide to be better. You can't just decide to be more holy. You will find a way to disobey. 
without the regenerating, gracious, justifying work of Jesus Christ. His grace is what saves us and changes us. The good news of Jesus Christ is certainly not less than the fact that Jesus died in my place and yours to pay for our sins on the cross. But it's so much more than that. The gospel is also that he gave his life to purchase you and me out of our slavery to our sin. When he ascended on high after resurrecting, he was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And in that process, he took you and I captive out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom to which we were obedient in disobedience, and called us into his kingdom of light so that we might be his citizens following his rule and reign. Church, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus the Christ is our Savior and our King and our Lord, and all authority has been given to him. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. The gospel is that he has poured out his spirit into our hearts so that we might know our sinfulness, know our brokenness, that there is not one of us that is righteous except by his grace. And he gives us his righteousness to walk in it all of our days. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's no wonder that Paul and Peter, when they refer to the gospel, In a couple of places, they speak of obeying the gospel. Church, how do you obey the message that God has a perfect plan for your life? Say a prayer and you'll be saved and you go to heaven when you die. How do you obey that? But here's what Paul says, Romans 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God meaning the church. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If Jesus is just Savior, how do you obey that? You obey him because he's not only Savior. He's also King and Lord. Why is it good news to be obeyed? Because the good news that I just said to you, it demands a response. If you're sitting here today in apathy or in dismissal or saying, maybe I'll think about the gospel another time, you're in error. The gospel demands a response. Today, God is asking you, if you haven't already given your life to him, he's asking you, will you surrender your life to his authority as king and lord? And so this is why it's so important to understand that to hear the good news is not enough. To believe the good news is not enough. Hear and believe in both Greek and Hebrew always have the connotation of hearing in order to obey. And this is why Jesus himself requires obedience. I've shared this with you, so has Patrick, so has Tyler over the last few months. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Yes, that's the gospel I love. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. See how he connects the two? But the wrath of God remains on him. Obedience is massive. Dear church, do you think that obedience is important to God? Brothers and sisters, do you think that obedience is important to God? 
And so we, as Christians existing in the relationship of parent and child, we have an immense responsibility to picture God the Father and help our children picture his obedient children to the world. But guys, this is not just any obedience, not just blind conformity or compliance through gritted teeth. It's not just waiting until you're 18 and can get out of the house. Paul said in Ephesians 6 that children are to obey your parents in the Lord. This is part. This is your role when you're growing up. This is your role when you're an adult and your parents in the Lord who are older than you give you wise counsel. Now, there's a debate about what this means, the idea of in the Lord. Does this mean you only obey your parents if they're Christian? Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because even non-Christian parents can give wisdom that speaks of God's common grace. What I believe it is is very similar to as we noted with husbands and wives. I would submit to you that what this in the Lord means there, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, it means obeying when what they're asking of you is in the Lord meaning in line with God's design and order. Notice that the apostles did not follow in blind compliance to the Sanhedrin, right? We're told to to submit to governing authorities, are we not? But do we do that all the time? Do we never point out their faults and failures? No, absolutely not. If that were the case, in Acts 5, you would not hear Peter and the apostles say this to the Sanhedrin, the ruling authorities. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So the Bible gives us tons of evidence that when we are asked by people who are in roles to which we are submitted or who we obey, when we are asked to do things that are contrary to the heart of God, we can stand up and expose those as faulty. Parents, do you let your kids do that? When you're being not the greatest dad or mom, do you allow your children the room to come to you and say, I'm hurt by how you just parented me? Well, Hans, that would be chaos in the home. No, it's actually amazing because then, guess what you get to do? You get to model confession and repentance to them. How do they know how to do confession and repentance if you never do it to them or for them? And so, as either a father in my own home or, guys, as a father in the faith at this church, my authority is never, ever because I said so. Ever. It should always be governed by Because Yahweh calls us to. Would you follow me? As a dad, it should be, son, daughter, I need you to do something. Why? Because Yahweh calls us to. Will you follow me? My authority is only credible in so much as I am under the authority of the word of God and the leadership of this church. And that goes for every leader in this church. And Paul says that this is right when parents and children operate in this way. The word there is the same root as righteous, right, righteous. It's right because it's how God designed it to be. It is right relationship. Children need parents who train them. Let me say that again. Children are born needing parents' direction. Let me show you how the world used to think about kids. This was uh, the idea in the medieval days, okay? This is a picture of a sperm. And in there is a fully formed human with a really big head, right? The reason they believed that this was the case was that the sperm would take the baby into the uterus of the mom and then the baby would just grow and then come out fully formed, ready to go. So your only job as a parent was to help them survive because they kind of figure things out on their own. This was back before we had science. And yet, do you notice, guys, this is how 2018 society operates with kids? Well, let them figure out their own gender. I know they have a physical gender, but let them figure it out. 
Well, don't brainwash your kids with religious ideas. Let them figure out who they want to follow. Guys, all children are all brainwashed all the time. That's what they're born to do is be brainwashed. That's why the public school system exists. I'm not joking. Do you not think that every adult wants to brainwash children in some capacity? The question is, what are you brainwashing them with? The truth or a lie? This is how we still treat kids. This is how parents in this church, some of us, we treat our kids. Well, I don't really need to train them or raise them up because, you know, they'll figure things out on their own. They don't come pre-programmed. What babies need, what children need, is they need guidance and training, and they need to be filled with knowledge. And the knowledge of the Lord desires for them is that of his heart of righteousness and justice. And so my earlier point, guys, is so important. God commands parents to train their children in the Lord, not just help them survive. Paul moves from this command there in verse 1 to a quote from the fifth commandment in Ephesians 6, 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I want to submit to you that Paul is trying to make a point here because remember, whenever you quote from the Old Testament, what's he doing? He's bringing the idea of that text into the present. And so I would submit to you that this is what he's trying to tell the parents of the church, myself included. Parents and God's chosen people are disciples that make disciples. Parents and God's chosen people are disciples that make disciples. It is a characteristic of God's chosen people that their lives evidence his character and heart. And this is only because he has chosen them for that purpose. Israel was chosen by God through Abraham to be his people and to bring his rule to bear in the world, to show the world what it was to follow Yahweh. And core to that purpose was the law of God. Summarized in the Ten Commandments, God's law was how Israel was to carry out righteousness and justice and act as a witness among the nations. Why don't you go with me to Deuteronomy 5 in your Bibles. Go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy 5 and 6, and we're going to look at something here. We're going to look at the law of God. When you get to Deuteronomy 5, tell me what the heading in your Bible says. The heading is not inspired, but it captures well the summary of what's there. What's Deuteronomy 5 about? Say it nice and loud. The Ten Commandments, the law of God. This is a summary of God's law, and it's a recap from what was given in Exodus. Now, after they, uh, the people um, of Israel saw Moses survive getting the law from God, because remember, no one was supposed to go in before God without dying, uh, they get really excited. And look at what they say in Deuteronomy 5.27, okay? They say to Moses in 5.27, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. Remember that anytime you see L-O-R-D in caps, that is in the Hebrew Yahweh, but out of reverence they don't pronounce it, and so that's why we have Lord in our Bibles, okay? And then verse 28, and the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. In other words, that they will hear it and do it. That's the end of verse 27. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. Parents, can you say a hearty amen? Amen. You know, mom, dad, I'll do whatever you want. Oh, that you had a heart to do this always, right? Okay. 
to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Notice the descendants, okay? Obedience is always about the next generation, okay? We're not talking about Star Trek. We're talking about our kids, okay? For all you nerds out there. Uh, Verse 30, go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, he says to Moses, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statues and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them. Not just teach them, but that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, uh, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Man, this seems like it's kind of cramping my style a little bit. I can't go left when I want. I can't go right when I want. I can't do whatever I want when I want. Well, that's the whole point. Well, how would they do this? God desires that his people would keep his commands through their descendants forever. How would they do this? Well, he gives them an awesome thing. Just like we do with memory verses, he gives them uh, another summary that they can keep. And when asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus recalls it to memory as a good Jewish boy, right? It's what's called the great Shema. Everybody repeat that, the great Shema. In Hebrew, the word Shema means to hear, but not just to use one's auditory nerve. It means to listen in order to obey. Same in the Greek word. Brian read the great Shema earlier when he was reading. And it's so important to the Jewish people that many Orthodox Jews will repeat it to themselves daily, muttering it in prayer. Okay? Now, just because some of you love Hebrew, I'm going to say it. Ian can check up on my pronunciation here later. Right? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ichad. Vahavta et Adonai Elohecha. They would repeat this over and over to themselves. You'll hear them at the Wailing Wall saying this to themselves. And here's where it is in English, guys. Look at it, 6-4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Over and over and over every day they would repeat this. What was its point? It was easy so that it could be taught to their children in discipleship. Look at Deuteronomy 6.2, right above that. What was the point of this? That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. No halfway covenant there. By keeping all his statutes, statutes and his commandments. And how often should they teach them this truth? Well, look at Deuteronomy 6.7-9, through 9, right after the great Shema. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Notice that word diligently. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time. Not just when you pray before a meal, not just when you get on your knees before bed, not just when something really bad happens. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In all situations, in all places, teaching them diligently at all times. It is our number one job as parents. Now, why is this? Why is this so important? Well, look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? Parents, if you haven't heard this yet, you will. Why do we got to do this? What's the point of Jesus? Why do I have to follow him? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, 
And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there. For what purpose? That he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. When your kids ask you why you're learning this, the parents would respond in Old Testament Jewish terms because of the gospel. The good news. Son, we were redeemed. We were brought out of a kingdom of enemies and brought into the promises given to our fathers. And God's commands are for our good always because of the gospel. Because the good news of Jesus, it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do as he asks because he is a good God who has saved us. Why do we do this? Because of the gospel. Their obedience was to be the proper response to God's redemption and salvation. Church, why are we to be obedient people? Because of the gospel. Because of God's goodness and grace. Parents, why should our children obey us? Because in our parenting and in our lives, they're supposed to see the gospel at work. Why should they obey? Not because I'm a good parent, but because of God's goodness and God's grace. Parents are to be the incarnate presence in the life of our children. And we help our children hear how to obey God. That is the only reason we have any authority in their lives at all, to make them disciples. And this is why Paul quotes from the fifth commandment. In the past, we've talked about how the first four commandments deal with man's relationship to God, and the last six deal with man's relationship with one another. Now, this is absolutely true, but we have to realize that in the Jewish mind, they had two tablets with five on each. Honoring your mother and father was on the tablet about how you related to God. And obeying parents The command is then connecting that child with obeying God. Parents are to be the first loving authority that shows their children who God is. They have done studies across the board, and they have found that the number one person in people's lives who they use to show an example of who God the Father is, guess who it is? Their own dad, or the lack thereof, or the abuse they suffer. God is unjust. Why? My dad was abusive. God is absent. Why? My dad was never around. Why God did it that way, I don't know. It's a large responsibility, but it is the truth. We are to show our children who God is. And this was so important to the Jews that the stakes were immensely high. They didn't have to worry about bad grades or not getting into college or maybe having their child move back when they're 25 and sleep on their couch. What they had to worry about was in Deuteronomy 21. Everybody look there with me. Deuteronomy 21. In Deuteronomy 21.18, we see what happens when parents did not disciple their children in the ways of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 21.18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. In other words, they're doing their job, but he's not responding. 
Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, we immediately are like, oh, that's so archaic and terrible. Well, in a sense, yes, but guess what probably happened often? Mom and dad took a whole lot more responsibility about whether or not they parented their children. It wasn't society's problem, it was theirs. Do you really want to have to stand there and watch your child get stoned to death? No. And so, parents, our raising of our children is not just in order to make successful citizens or patriotic Americans or hard workers, or to turn them into our retirement plan. All of these are not terrible things. They're not ultimately evil, but our ultimate goal should be to make disciples that practice righteousness and justice as a response to God's grace and holiness. All of parenting must be thought of in this way. When my child harms another child, am I seeing correction as teaching the dignity of other humans and and the need to live justly? Or am I just going, oh, kids are kids, they just beat each other up? When my child lies or speaks a false witness, am I seeing it as a heinous sin against the truthful holiness of God that needs to be corrected? Or do I think, oh, kids will do that? When my child acts picky about what they eat, do I see it as a chance to teach my child that all things that God created are to be received with thanksgiving and to be content with God's provision? Or do I side with them because I'm a picky adult? When our children want and want and want more, do we see it as an opportunity to train them in contentment or buy them what they want so they'll be our friends? When our children use their mouths in ways that are not fruitful, screaming, yelling, hollering, yelling obscenities, saying bad things, do we see it as a chance to teach our children early that they must have self-control in how they speak and communicate? And this begins when they're infants, not after. When our children are out of control, running wild, do we view it as a chance to step away and let other people parent our children? Or do we teach them self-control, self-discipline, a trait that is so necessary as adults? You want to know the number one test of whether or not your child will be successful in life? It's called the marshmallow test. It was done at Stanford. You put a kid in a room, you put a marshmallow in front of them, and you tell them if they wait until you get back in the room, you'll give them a second marshmallow. And they've done this study for years, and they've found that the kids who have no self-control and eat the marshmallow immediately, they are destined for a life that is less than pristine. Those that can sit and wait and have self-control until the person comes back in to give them a second marshmallow, they have a much higher success rate in life. When are you teaching your children self-control? We do self-control drills at our house. Be in the kitchen doing dishes, the kids are finishing up dinner, being wild little kids like they are, and I'll say, self-control! We're going to practice self-control. Everybody pause, freeze, quiet as a church mouse, and let's try. And if they don't do it, guess what? There's a consequence. Because I want them to know self-control now, not when they're standing there next to the drug dealer or next to the adulterous person. When our children's emotions are leading them astray, do we help them bring all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? Do we view our responsibility to monitor screen time and binge-watching as a chance to help our children follow the example of the psalmist who said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes? When you call to your child and they run away from you, do you laugh? Or do you realize that in that moment you are training them how to respond to the authority of Jesus when he calls them back from rebellion? 
When we do not respond consistently and immediately to rebellion, do we realize that we are tarnishing the faithfulness of God to discipline his children immediately? Guys, I know that parenting is exhausting, but it's what we're called to do. And for our church, with so many young children and parents, possibly the biggest question we need to ask ourselves is why we're waiting until our children have already turned into the personalities they will turn into in order to discipline them. We can't wait until they speak because by then, dear brothers and sisters, it's too late. The foundation of training is already established. We need to know discipleship starts at the moment of birth by loving them and creating a foundation of care. If not, we run the risk of parenting in authoritarian hypocrisy, trying to clamp down on them far after the train has left the station. And even more core to our application is that we must first ask ourselves if we are disciples making disciples. Remember the order of the great Shema? Who was supposed to love the Lord their God first? The parents, so that they could pass it down to their kids. Guys, I've talked to a lot of young people over the years, and the number one reason that they walk away from the faith, you know what it is? Seeing hypocrisy in their parents' faith. Ask yourself, brothers and sisters, who are you in submission to? Who do you obey? Remember that we've discussed that how the church goes, the home goes, and vice versa. Why would your child ever read the Bible if they never saw you do it? Why would your child ever become part of a local church if you don't become part of a local church? Why would they make attendance at a church a priority when we don't make attendance a priority? You see, we are called to be people that disciple because we're disciples. We must do this because this is how we witness to the glory of God. Let me give you my last point here and just skip ahead a bit. Number three, to parent correctly, we must do our best to reflect the Heavenly Father. To parent correctly, we must do our best to reflect the Heavenly Father. Let's go back to Ephesians and remind ourselves of Paul's last point. Hopefully some of you will turn there so it, there's some noise because it got as quiet as a church mouse in here. <laughs> Ephesians 6. And let's remind ourselves of what he says there at the last in verse 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And he finishes with, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In our parent-child relationship, we are reflecting God's relationship with his people as God the Father and his sons and daughters. And so it is very much up to us as parents to proclaim this picture correctly. In the Greek, when it says brothers, often it's speaking to both men and women, and similarly this statement of fathers, it is meant for both mothers and fathers, not just dads. And he's telling us that our positions as parents is to be direct, a direct reflection of God. Remember who God is from Ephesians? Turn with me just to, really quickly to Ephesians 1.3 and look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons in Jesus Christ. This is who we're supposed to, to show. He's a good father that loves his kids, and any and all dis discipline is not punishment, it's training towards righteousness. 
And so the first thing that Paul commands us to is to not provoke our children. Guys, I do not claim to have the market on good parenting. Trust me. Kelly and I fail all the time. Kelly, can I get an amen? Yeah, she's nodding her head. She's an introvert, so her amen is, uh-huh, yeah, okay. In short, what we have learned is this, though. When you want to make a disciplinary withdrawal from your child's bank account, make sure you have sufficient funds, relationally and emotionally. Our kids must know how much we love them before we can correct them. That's why our entire job for the first year of life is to do what? Love them. There is no discipline. You love them. Our kids must know that they're loved and that their core identity is as a child of God that does not change so that we can help correct them in the midst. And we can easily provoke our children when we act unjustly. What does this look like? Well, we provoke our children when we discipline without ever first setting expectations. If we've never set expectations, it'll be confusing when we try and hold our kids to them. Do your kids know what you expect of them? We provoke our children when we are inconsistent in our parenting, one moment letting something go because we're on our phone and another erupting in anger over the same thing. We provoke our children when we give confusing messages. It is the worst thing in the world to grab your toddler and kiss them while you're also telling them no and trying to discipline them. It's confusing. I'd be confused. Your tone, your voice, your affect, everything should be saying no, not a confusing yes and no. Love them all the time, but when you go discipline them, help them to know that you're displeased. Why? Because it helps them to understand. We provoke our children when we're always correcting but never encouraging, when we're disciplining but never comforting or caring or nourishing or cuddling them. We provoke our children when we're asking them to repent to us, but they never see us modeling repentance to anyone else in the church or in the home. We should be giving our children examples of what confession and repentance and reconciliation looks like in our relationship with them. Whenever I go to discipline my kids, I always talk to them about who I'm accountable to. I'm accountable to Jesus and to Uncle Patrick, the other elder of our church, and to the deacons of our church. I'm accountable to them just like you're accountable to me. The Greek word there in Ephesians for bring them up is a word that means nourish. It's the same word that's used for husbands nourishing their wives over there in chapter 5. And so we need to nourish our kids, not just punish them. We nourish them in two ways. It says there, look at, uh, back at Ephesians 6.4, it says, bring them up, nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These two words mean disciplinary measures and verbal instruction. We have to discipline our children. In our day and age, for some reason, There are so many people that take the misuse of discipline of the past, and rather than correcting it to the proper use, they just go to disuse. Four times in Proverbs it says to to use the rod of correction. Fathers, look at this, Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, for he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, I don't have time today to go into all the details of how to discipline correctly with the rod. If you'd like to know, come to our class on Saturday. See how that works out? Sign up for the class and come, and I will show you what it is to lovingly correct your child with love and compassion on either side and correction in the midst. Praying with them, showing them why we have to do it. Because discipline shouldn't be a punishment. It should be discipline, it should be a training that moves them in the appropriate direction. 
Look at what the Bible says about God. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I know that some parents in the past, maybe some of our parents, have used discipline in an abusive way. But let me say it again. The solution for misuse is not disuse, but proper use. The Bible has a proper way of discipline, and that is why it commands us to use it rightly. To give only love and not discipline casts a false sense of who God is and glosses over disobedience and sin and preaches a gospel of cheap grace. Let's image God rightly and deal with sin, but to deal with it in grace and love. And again, if you want more information on that, come to our train class on Saturday. Secondly, we're not only to discipline them, we're also to instruct them. Just like the great Shema at this church, we give our kids memory verses to memorize. We encourage you to grab uh, the book Family Worship on the back table and to use the New City Catechism to train your children theologically. Use these simple tools, folks, and you will be amazed at what happens in your children's hearts. But most importantly, parents, none of these tools matter if you do not make the discipling of your child your highest priority in life. Why do some children in our kids' ministry easily recite their memory verses and others don't? Church, I know this is possibly mean to say, but I'm going to say it. It is not because of the capability of your child. It's because of your lax attitude on discipling your children. Children who are taught every night, six nights between Sundays, how to memorize the scripture, their brains are built for that kind of memorization. If they're not doing it, it's not their fault. As Francis Folks notes in his commentary, parents should care more for the loyalty of their children to Christ than for anything besides. More for this than for their health, their intellectual vigor and brilliance, their material prosperity, their social position, their exemption from great sorrows and great misfortunes. We should care about their devotion to Jesus most of all. Parents, we have been given God's children, not our children. See, John, Jade, and Kara are not mine. They're God's. They've been given to Kelly and I for a breath of time, just like your children have been given to you, to steward them in his grace, his truth, and his wisdom. And I want to ask us the question this morning. Are we squandering that time in busyness with worldly things? Or are we investing it in our children with an eternal outlook? Parents of young children in here today, recognize that the time to disciple begins with love and comfort from the moment of birth, and it does not stop. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're not doing it right, then join every other parent in the room. We all have room to grow. We all have room to figure out what we're doing. The key is consistency and zeal. Use those and you will do well. To many of you in this room, I want to encourage you. I am blown away by some of your children. When they do acts of kindness and serve at this church, when they want to come to set up to help, when they love one another, when I see them obeying you, I'm blown away by the work you're doing. You know who you are. Keep going. 
your children will be an amazing witness. Parents of older children and teenagers in the room, recognize that your call to discipleship has not slowed down just because they are self-reliant or they don't seem interested. If they're teenagers, no offense, teenagers, you seem disinterested in everything, okay? (laughs) Recognize, parents, that they will follow your lead. Lead them. Make family worship a priority. Those who may not have children in the room, uh, I know there's a number of you, recognize that you are just as needed in this process of discipleship as anyone. Please help us raise our kids in the instruction of the Lord. So many of you do. I'm so thankful for the aunties and uncles in this room that my children have. For all of us, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we imitating the picture that God wants us to show in chapter 6? For those of you that are under 18 in the room, a very simple question. Are you obeying your parents in the Lord? If not, then I would lovingly ask you to repent because God is giving you that role in order to show his glory. Do it well. Today, my simple application is this. I know that it was a convicting message. I myself am highly convicted by this. But I want us to ask this. Can we say to our kids, as Paul did to the churches he pastored, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Parents, can you say that to your kids? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can you say, follow my discipleship as I am being discipled? Obey me as I obey the Lord and the local body I belong to. Can you say, look to me to see an image of the Father? Guys, if this is how you view parenting and you're investing in it, you're doing well. Keep going and raise up the next generation of disciples. And if not, if today is convicting to the point where you're thinking, man, i got to change some things, I would encourage you this week to sit down with the Lord. Sit down with your spouse, if you have a spouse, and figure out what you need to change in your life so that discipling your kids is your highest priority. And let's use our relationships as parents and children to show the world the image of God the Father and His loving instruction and discipline of His children. You know, if you walk away today with the idea that you have to become a perfect parent, I want to inform you that that is satanic. That is from Satan himself. If you walk away with an extreme sense of your own brokenness, that's from the Lord. And the impossibility that it is for us to raise disciples in Jesus' image. But God is so great that what he then can do with your brokenness is he can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, fill you with his wisdom and his way of working. And he can help you going in humility to your kids and asking them to partner with you in creating that picture of God the Father and his obedient children. And so even if you're a parent in here who thinks, man, my kids, uh, they're out of control. Or maybe you're older and the kids have flown the coop and maybe some of them might not be following the Lord. In all those cases, going to them and admitting your brokenness and saying, I want to point you to Jesus and I want to show you the gospel. It will make inroads, even if it doesn't seem like it in the moment. And so today, walk out of here understanding that, man, we need Jesus in order to show that gospel. We need his Holy Spirit to do that. And we can help one another do that.